Welcome to Roots in Medicine, a podcast that explores the intersections of race, science, and spirituality. I'm your host, Rebecca Rogers. This podcast will be broken down into three segments. Supreme Ain't Sour Cream, It's Not Rocket Science, and Food or Medicine for Thought. Each segment will explore a different aspect of how science, race, and spirituality are interconnected. And I hope at the end, you will leave inspired, motivated, and a little bit smarter. Let's begin. Supreme Ain't Sour Cream is a segment where we explore how white supremacist ideals continue to be perpetuated within medicine and culture. In today's revelation that Supreme Ain't Sour Cream, we will examine how all lungs are created equal, unless they're black. Once upon a time, there was a white supremacist named Thomas Jefferson. He set about using science to justify supremacy, including why slavery allowed black people to become closer to functioning like whites. He hypothesized that black people had smaller lung capacities than white people, so it was beneficial for black people to work to expand their lung capacities. A physician came through and came up with two diseases, drapetomania, or a desire to run away, and dysesthesia ethiopica, or a desire to chill out or be relaxed, not do a whole lot of work. And he set about proving that both of these diseases were scientifically relevant and valid. He developed something called a spirometer. He used it to measure the lung capacity of these slaves. Another scientist came through and examined the cadavers of soldiers in the Civil War. And this person confirmed that the physician and Thomas Jefferson were both accurate with their hypothesis that slaves did in fact have a smaller lung capacity than white people. There's a lot more scientific validation to prove this supremacy that Thomas Jefferson had hypothesized in the first place with no scientific basis for it. However, scientific research is continuing to validate these early findings, which may make an argument that there's a genetic basis to a racial difference. The caveat is that most of these studies do not control for all of the factors that may impact someone's lung capacity. So as we learned from the whole vaccines cause autism fiasco, correlation is not causation. Just because two things go together does not mean one caused the other to happen. And there might be a lot of other factors that we hadn't even thought about that might impact the observation that we're seeing. So spirometry, which is a measure of breath, it was developed in the 1800s. Other things that were going on in the 1800s, coal, the whole industrial revolution and like the development of using coal. So while Thomas Jefferson was trying to prove racial differences and that was his whole thing with like the lung capacities, there are physicians in England who are trying to prove that that people who had higher exposures to coal had lower lung capacities. And their hypothesis was that the lung capacity was directly caused by exposure to your air quality. And so it has nothing to do with a genetic basis and has everything to do with an environmental aspect. Science has actually established a reason for coal exposure to cause damage to your lungs. There is a group of diseases that are collectively called like a black lung disease. When you inhale coal or honestly a lot of other substance, a lot of other molecules, 
some of those molecules are not able to get used within your lungs and you're not able to cough them out. So they just get trapped in the cells in your lungs upon like autopsy or upon gross examination when the person has died or has passed on and you can see their entire lung. You can look at the differences in the colors and in the texture. It's a lot more like fibrotic and tense. It's not really rubbery anymore. There is a drastic difference between the two lung types. And there's a lot of scientific basis to show all of the reasons that that is occurring. Early attempts to classify like that disease, they had problems because they had a uh, their determination of normal was inadequate. And so, when you don't necessarily determine what normal is specifically, it becomes difficult for you to classify something as a disease. A disease literally is something that is not normal, that is not supposed to be happening in your body. So, if you're not sure what is supposed to and what's not supposed to be happening in your body, it's very difficult for you to call something a disease versus just a variation of normal. And so they're trying to define some genetic basis for these racial discrepancies and they've got nothing because there's no genetic basis for race. Like, there's just not. We've tried this over and over and over. It's not a thing. And so there might be a such thing as a normal lung. There's not a scientific basis to prove that the white population has a monopoly on what it is to be a normal lung. There have to be complete representation from all populations to be able to say, and from all exposures to air quality, to be able to say what a normal lung actually is. And we have to remove any type of lens or view of white supremacy in order to establish normal for what it is. And you actually, when the studies actually include environmental factors like exposure to pollution, there's no racial difference. Like all of those things go away. So we really need to emphasize a lot more the environment, not the race. And when you can acknowledge that predominantly people who live in underserved communities are not, not people who are affluent white, we have to acknowledge that there are a lot of correlations because these people are both black and living in areas with poor air quality that we have to really establish what is it? Is it them being black or is it the air quality that is the problem? And also on the inside, some of us are still a little more black than others. It's Not Rocket Science is a segment where I introduce a scientific concept, then break down how it applies within the human body. This week, I'll be exploring how oxygen got into the atmosphere, an event known as the Great Oxidation Event. Have you ever wondered why the atmosphere is mostly nitrogen, yet we breathe oxygen? When the Earth was first made, the atmosphere is mostly nitrogen. The way oxygen set up, it can hold extra electrons. And electrons are what make molecules interact with each other to form bonds. Some of these bonds are ionic, covalent bonds, et cetera, et cetera. But they might also just be intermolecular bonds, like hydrogen bonding based on different polarities from the electron movement. Molecules that don't have the same number of protons and electrons, those are called ions. So if you have more protons than electrons, it's going to be positively charged. If it's more electrons than protons, it's going to be negatively charged. So both of those have some type of a charge. And so that is the ion that is created from the unequal number of protons and electrons. Iron is another element that can make ions. Oxygen, the way oxygen is set up, it tends to want to take more electrons and therefore it is going to become negatively charged. Whereas the way iron is set up, 
it is more likely to give up its electrons and become positively charged. So you're going to have iron that's out here trying to give up its electrons and you're going to have oxygen, which is out here trying to take electrons. That makes a very beautiful friendship relationship where oxygen can take the electrons that iron is willing to give up. However, because that share of electrons or that transfer of electrons creates a bond, the oxygen is no longer going to just be freely floating around. It's now bound to iron. So initially in the atmosphere, the majority of the oxygen that was present, it's not that there was no oxygen present. Most of the oxygen that was present was bound to iron. So if you look, especially in like mountains, so like Utah or um, like the Grand Canyon, or even if you look at some rocks that are very old, you'll be able to see different lines within the rocks. And those lines in the rocks are showing exactly how much iron is bound to oxygen to make a specific color. So certain amounts of electrons when iron has a certain charge are going to be a different lighter or darker color than when there are fewer electrons present. And so you can see exactly how many electrons and how much oxygen is bound based on the like size of the line, let you know how long the atmosphere was like that. So there's a lot of proof to show that there was oxygen present. It was just bound to iron initially in the atmosphere. It took a lot to create oxygen that would just be freely floating within the atmosphere. So nobody, like, there was no humans that were present when the great oxidation event happened. So we have to just hypothesize and do scientific research and lab studies to validate any observations that we're able to see or any hypotheses that we may make. So logic and reason is going to tell us that there is likely a mutation that caused some type of a, an advantage, a selective advantage, and allowed certain organisms to live and reproduce more offspring. Initially, again, going back to oxygen was not heavily present within the atmosphere, organisms weren't making oxygen to be present in the atmosphere. So we know now like the Amazon rainforest is the lungs of the earth, quote unquote, because there's just like the trees make so much oxygen for all of us to breathe. So there are lots of organisms now that make oxygen as a waste product for us to be able to breathe, then there were none. Over time, the abundance of offspring that were capable of making oxygen increased so much that there wasn't enough iron to absorb all of the oxygen there. So then some of the oxygen was like, fine, we can't take your electrons. I guess we're just going to be out here freely floating. We may just have to bind with ourselves until we can do something else. And so instead of it just being oxygen, that's how you end up getting O2. Oxygen will bind to oxygen instead of oxygen binding to um, iron. You'll also get oxygen binding to a lot of other things instead of um, just iron and to some extent nitrogen. You're also going to get carbon starting to bind with oxygen in something we call carbon dioxide. So you're starting to recognize the atmosphere is becoming much more diverse. It's not just predominantly carbon anymore. You're starting to see a lot of other um, elements and compounds, molecules present one thing to also note is that carbon dioxide and methane specifically create a greenhouse gas greenhouse gas 
experience. So a lot of times you'll talk, you'll hear about like a greenhouse effect. And that's literally the type of gas molecules that are present in the atmosphere are absorbing so much energy and so many electrons and so much heat that it's preventing the heat from escaping. And so it makes it stay hotter underneath where that blanket of gases is. So a long, 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 long time ago, when there wasn't so much diversity, there was a lot of methane and there was a lot of carbon dioxide and there was a lot of nitrogen and et cetera, et cetera, in the atmosphere. The earth was very hot, like very hot. And so the great oxidation event is also distinct for it shifting the atmosphere, like literally changing the temperature and starting to see it initiated like the glaciation phase. So when the atmosphere started to get really, really, really cold and then you see the ice age and things like that, all of that is due to the relative presence or absence of oxygen, methane, carbon dioxide and other molecules in the air. So the amount of free oxygen as it was increasing, that was called the great oxidation event. Over time, those organisms were able to thrive even more because of their ability to use oxygen to make energy. And eventually they created humans. But it's not rocket science to be able to understand how oxygen got here in the first place. Food or medicine for thought is a segment where I explore how scientific concepts help explain our spiritual experiences. When you hear the word inspire, what comes to your mind? For some, you may think about words to motivate you, people you admire, or situations that gave you a different perspective. For others, you may think about taking a deep breath in. But who said those two things are different anyways? The Judeo-Christian story of creation describes a man is living after receiving the breath of life. In the Hindu religion, prana or breath is a practice. There are even some Ayurvedic treatments that include breathing exercises. Some cultures believe breath and spirit are interconnected. Many cultures have similar concepts. For example, chi in the Chinese culture, orenda, and even mana, to name a few. Westernized science is all about proof or evidence, specifically in an attempt to remove religion from scientific discourse. And while there are benefits, I wonder if both of those things should always be separated. The problem with science is that it also requires a belief in something that hasn't been scientifically proven the efficacy of the scientific method. (laughs) However, the scientific method has been employed to institutionalize racism. So is it really better than religion? At the end of the day, all you can control is your breath and your beliefs. If multiple cultures over thousands of years independently came to similar conclusions about the correlation between breath and spirit, it makes far less sense that there is no correlation. Whatever you choose to believe, I encourage you to become more aware of your breath. Take time to slow down. Dysesthesia aethiopica may have once been an illness, but now 
people pay to travel to the Caribbean and other locations where they can experience a life of leisure. Do not overwork yourself. Breathe deeply. And as the great oxidation event demonstrated, if enough people do something, it can shift in atmosphere. Breathe in. Breathe out. And above all, stay rooted.